G'day team, uh, James Dapachi here. Um, this is another one of these Instagram lives that I'm doing every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Sydney time. Uh, the date I'm recording this one is the 26th of August. Uh, I'm going to run through four or five more of these. So if you're inclined to join the fun, uh, as you're about to find, it's a bit cheeky. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram at coffee and a case note, or one word, coffee and a case note. I'd be super grateful if you could ping me a follow on Instagram. And also, if you're on some sort of app where you can review this, I'd be mega 10 out of 10, 100 points grateful. If you'd be happy to sling me a review, and of course, if you're going to do that, make it a nice high review. Oh, sorry. A lot of stars and a nice good review. Look, you'll you'll do what you feel, and hopefully, what you feel is very kind and generous to me. But let us get to that spicy content. We're talking derivative actions tonight. Really looking forward to it. Cheers. Hello there, team. Uh, if you are on Instagram, as you are, uh, then we're just going to give ourselves a couple of moments for us all to assemble. And if you are listening on the podcast, um, I'll invite you to skip ahead a couple of minutes because we're just going to have a bit of gentle chit-chat um, as we get together. G'day, Bradley. Good to see you. G'day, Alex. How are you? Wave back to you there. Um, team, why don't we start with a bit of housekeeping? Um, the <laughs> Alex, love the love hard eyes. Um, the housekeeping is uh, through this evening, I'm going to have a couple of sips of a reasonable single malt um, it's the same one I was having a sip of from last week. It's got a crazy Scottish name that I can't pronounce, and so I won't try. And what I might do is I might invite you to have a sip of something yourself or a bite of dinner. And if you're if you're there having a sip of something fun or having a bite of something yum, uh, why don't you um, share that with us in the comments below? I'd be interested to hear if you're... Having a nice pot of green tea. G'day, Hanny Wright, how are you? Having a nice pot of green tea, or if you are having a nice glass of wine, or a, um, a big glass of water, uh, whatever it might be, toasted sandwich, um, I am interested to hear about it. And just forgive me, because I'm exchanging WhatsApp messages about the excitement going on with another firm at the moment. I think we're back. Sorry about that. Let's forget about those WhatsApp messages. Uh, Morris Lynch and I can talk another time about uh, all that sort of exciting stuff we're chatting about. Moz, what's up? Thanks for interrupting. I appreciate it. So, team, tonight we are going to talk about derivative actions. And uh, we're not going to start for about another two minutes or so. But just to give you a bit of background, um, a derivative action... Hello there, New Emacs. A derivative action is... When uh, someone, and I'll use this expression a few times, um, stands in the shoes of the company and sues someone else in the name of the company. If that sounds a little bit weird, don't worry, we're going to figure it out. Um, but for the moment, I'm going to have a sip of this whiskey, which I say I deserve. <laughs> um, uh, it's been a crazy old day, my dudes. Uh, I hope your day has been uh, fun and productive and these sorts of things. And uh, we're going to get started in a moment. And if you're having a sip of something fun, do let me know about it, please. Very drinkable. Okay. So, team, let us talk about standing in the company's shoes, which is the expression I've 
used to describe what a successful applicant in a derivative action can do. If that all sounds like gobbledygook, don't worry, um, it is going to make sense. <coughs> I, pro- <laughs> I promise. Okay. So, if there is a company that has a claim against some third party and that company is unwilling to pursue the claim, the shareholders <coughs> who have no control over what the company does, you can imagine feeling a little bit miffed. It's almost an impossible situation. If you're a shareholder in a company and the company is refusing by its directors to go and sue someone and you as a shareholder say the company should be suing that person um, and you've got no power to make those decisions, well, uh, the problem can feel very, very difficult indeed. And the short point is that a derivative action is the answer to that problem. A derivative action is the means by which a shareholder or a certain... (coughs) Sorry about all these coughs, team. As well as whiskey, I've got water, so why don't we have a sip of that? Mm. I'm on brand. It's the Chamberlain's water. You'll be pleased to um, you'll be pleased to note. G'day, letters to the editor. Great to have your company. Man, that's irritating. These bike bottles. Sorry, I was done school the lid. So. The ability of a shareholder or a limited number of other parties to stand in the shoes of the company and cause the company to go and sue that third party, that's called a derivative action. And we are going to make our way through that this evening. Uh, A very sharp comment from um, Real One Letters to the Neditor here in the comments. If you're on the podcast listening to this in two weeks' time, um, we get interrupted by excellent comments here on these live sessions, and it's all part of the fun. So bear with us. Team, if you've got comments to make or if you're having a cheeky drink of something yum, let me know about it. I'll have this one to your health. Cheers. So what's the structure of tonight? Um, The structure is uh, going to be very similar to other talks I've given. We're going to open up with a chat about the law, the nuts and bolts, particularly of section 236 and 237 of the Corporations Act and the inherent jurisdiction of the court. So there's crunchy legal law stuff, technical stuff. Then we are going to, I'm going to ex-Poo-Jack. That's an interesting name. Good to see you. Um, After we talk about the crunchy technical bits of law, we're going to move on to talking about some judicial examples. We're going to talk about some real-life court cases that happened so that with our technical knowledge that we're about to acquire, We're going to then have some examples to say, all right, what happens when the rubber hits the road? How are these things happening in the marketplace? What do judges have to say about them? Then finally, uh, and it'll just be a little bit of the chat, I'm going to make some practical suggestions for you about the way either you in your practice, if you're a practicing solicitor, or perhaps you in business, if these are issues you might end up confronting from time to time. G'day, Gargent and Co. I'm going to make some practical suggestions for you uh, that you can put to work in your practice or in your business. Okay, uh, let's start, you guys. And let's start with a conversation about the law. And we are just going to start getting a little bit fuzzy for the next 15 minutes or so. So if you black out and things get confusing, don't worry. We're coming out on the other side with some examples that are going to make all these things make sense. So it's going to be fine. Don't worry. Section 236 of the Corporations Act 
is where we're going to start. And I'll spare you reading out the section, but um, in short, I'm going to go through the highlights. Now, a person may bring proceedings, this is section 236, on behalf of a company or intervene in existing legal proceedings or take a particular step if they're a member, when we say member, for the sake of tonight, let's just call it a shareholder. Similar things, but they're not exactly the same. Uh, a member or a former member or an officer or a former officer of the company. And if the person has leave pursuant to Section 237, and we'll get to Section 237 shortly. And the right of a person at general law to bring an action on behalf of the company is abolished. You don't have context for why that's important, but we're also going to get to that. So as we consider Section 236, let's linger on a couple of points, if I may. Section 236, there are a few things that stand out. Membership, which as I say, we're going to equate with shareholding, or a related entity, sorry, membership of the company, or a related entity to the company, So it's not just membership of the company itself, it can be membership of a related entity to the company is enough to give standing to allow that person to make an application, to make a derivative action application. An officer or a former officer can make an application. If there is a success in that application, then the proceedings that flow from it, because remember you've said to the court, hey court, I want to stand in the company's shoes and sue person X. Um, And the court says, yeah, that's fine. Uh, Well, if the court does say, yeah, that's fine, then you are suing person X in the name of the company. So if we use the example of BHP uh, and you successfully um, pursue BHP for a derivative action, uh, then uh, you will be suing as BHP. You will have that name. It will be in the name of the company. That is how you will run your piece of litigation. And James Cruz has joined us. James, good to see you. And Michael's joined us as well. This is good fun. So that's section 236, and that's the crunchy, fiddly, complex part. So let's jump to section 237 now. And as I say, if your brain's feeling a bit fuzzy with this legal stuff, don't worry. In about nine or 10 minutes or so, we will get to some worked examples that are going to make this all make sense. So let's turn to section 237 of the Act. And remember, what we're thinking about is when can a person stand in the shoes of a company? When can they go sue someone else in the name of a company? And um, the court must let someone do that if there are a number of points that are satisfied. There are five points pursuant to section 237 that are relevant for us. And James Wrigley's here. Hello there, James. And so these five points pursuant to section 237 are the person must satisfy the court that the company is not going to make the claim itself. The person must satisfy the court that they are acting in good faith. The person must satisfy the court that making that claim, that causing BHP to sue James is in the best interests of the company, the best interests of BHP. G'day, Paul. Good to see you. Uh, And the applicant must show there is a serious question to be tried. You know, there's a genuine dispute 
um, there's something real and tangible for the company to be claiming in relation to what you're trying to get the court to do. So we've just learned a lot just there. So let me just give it a brief review. Section 236 says the court can okay a shareholder or former shareholder, an officer or former officer to sue someone else in the name of the company if the 237 criteria are met. Those 237 criteria are, can you prove the company's not going to do it anyway? Can you prove that it's in the best interests of the company? Can you prove that you're acting in good faith? Can you prove that there's a serious question to be tried? And have you given the appropriate notice to the relevant parties? We're going to work through all of these points later. So don't worry if they're a bit fuzzy now. We're going to sort it out. Now, um, there is a rebuttable presumption that granting leave is not in the best interest of the company. Remember, one of the five things you've got to prove pursuant to Section 237 is that it is in the best interest of the company. But a little subsection of Section 237 says the court's going to presume it's not in the best interest of the company if the directors, the company, the directors have made a considered decision where they were not conflicted out uh, and they formed the view on a reasonable basis that it was not in the best interest of the company or that the company ought not pursue the claim. It's a fairly little area that we can come to if we need to. So um, if we're talking about Section 237, there are just a few things I want to linger on. If all those five criteria are satisfied, those five are the company's not going to do it, you're coming in good faith, it's in the best interest of the company, there's a serious question to be tried, and you gave the appropriate notice, if you can satisfy the court of all that, the court must let you stand in the company's shoes. It must grant leave to you to bring a derivative action. And so let's drill into these five points a little bit, shall we? Because they can be a little bit vague uh, until we address them uh, firmly, if I can put it that way. So let's have a look at the question of likelihood. Is it likely or not that the company is going to bring a claim of its own volition? G'day, Ree Malone. Well, uh, that is a question of fact, and that is something that the applicant, that you, are going to have to prove uh, in order to stand in the shoes of BHP to get BHP to sue me. You're going to have to prove to the court that um, BHP was not going to sue me anyway. And um, as you'd probably guess, a good way to do that is to send a letter to BHP to say, hey, BHP, go sue James. <laughs> and they reply, no. <laughs> and so often it's not a particularly contentious point. The second thing you're going to need to prove uh, if you are going to succeed in a derivative action and be allowed to stand in the shoes of the company to go and sue someone else is you're going to need to prove you're coming in good faith. Now, coming in good faith doesn't mean being kind. Coming in good faith doesn't mean there's an absence of a personal animus or malice. It just means that there is a genuine reason for you bringing the claim. And that genuine reason can simply be you're a shareholder and the value of your shares will go up if the claim is brought. So it's not a high standard, but um, 
I should say, if the motivation for bringing the claim is merely and solely personal animus, malice, old grudges, this sort of thing, then the good faith test will fail. But if the motivation is, look, I'm a shareholder and I want my money, notwithstanding the fact that I do have personal malice for these people, the good faith test can be comfortably passed. There does not need to be an absence of malice in order for good faith to be proved. The best interests of the company question is an interesting one. Um, It's one that the court will need to confront on the balance of probabilities. Michael, what am I drinking? Sorry, is the question. Um, I'm drinking a Speyside single malt. I think you guys have mirror image. Look, it's cask strength. I'm used to drinking fairly boring blends. G'day, Luke. Good to see you. Um, And so having a cask strength single malt is... um, It's going to make my interpretation of the Corporations Act more interesting as the evening progresses. Michael, what are you drinking? And anyone else in the comments, please feel free to share whatever you're drinking with us. Feel free to share what it is. Um, I don't actually want to drink out of your glass, of course. Simpler times, simpler times. So let's get back into whether something is in the best interests of the company. Um, That question is going to be answered on the balance of probabilities. Michael suggesting my choice of booze is boring. He's having kombucha. All right, well, (laughs) I'll have to defer on that. Um, So what the court is going to consider in relation to this best interests test is it's going to consider whether the applicant might get what they want, whether you might get what you want without on. G'day. We have got young latch in the place. It's good to see you. Um, The court is going to have to consider whether the um, applicant, you, are better placed to get what you want just by chasing it yourself rather than causing the company to come and sue me. That's going to be one of the best interest tests. And so as we move on to think about the serious question to be tried test, this is, and I, I, I don't want to deal with it too lightly, but this is with respect a reasonably easy test to pass. It's similar to the test for those of you who are familiar with this area, for an interlocutory injunction. In essence, you've got to convince the court there's something there. There's a genuine argument. You have to say to the court, look, um, BHP, if, if we're going to keep this example going, you have to say to the court, look, BHP does have something of a claim against James. That claim is BHP made an agreement with James that they were going to give it they were going to give him uh, some coal and James was going to give him a million dollars. BHP gave him the coal. James didn't give him a million dollars. So BHP have got a good claim for a million dollars. And basically, if you've got some fairly just sort of fundamental evidence and a little bit of an argument about that, it's going to be a fairly easy uh, issue for you to um, argue successfully that there is a serious question to be tried. There's a question here from Samar, and if anyone does have questions, can I encourage you to push the question mark button down the bottom because that'll allow me to put the question up in the corner here while we address it. But Samar asks a question, what was the point about best interests? Well, best interests um, is one of the five requirements to allow an applicant to stand in the shoes of the company pursuant to section 237. It's got to be proved on the balance of probabilities uh, and Uh, one of the things that the applicant is going to need to show the court is the applicant is going to need to confront the possibility that the court might say, why don't you just sue them yourself? Why do you need to go through the company to do it? And the applicant is going to need to have a good answer to that question. 
So Samara, I hope that helps. Happy to elaborate. And if we've got questions, please chuck them in the comments or please push that question mark button so I can throw your question up in the corner. Um, still interested in what everyone's drinking. Um, Michael's having a kombucha. I'm having apparently uh, a whiskey that Michael doesn't like. Um, but aside from that, like deathly silence. You guys are all teetotaling or avoiding your teapot or whatever it might be. Which is fine, I should say. Um, now, let's have a think about a company in liquidation. The difficulty is that a company in liquidation does not have access to um, the Section 236 and Section 237 relief. Just let that sink in while I see that Letters to the Net is having a Cooper's Pale. Yes, Cooper's Green, I'm about it. Oh, Mickey's having a boy. He's saying kombucha's boring. I get it. Ree's having a red wine. Ree, respectfully, well-deserved. I hope you're really enjoying it, all of you. Okay. If a company is in liquidation, it does not have access to Section 236 and Section 237 of the Corporations Act. It must instead rely on the court's inherent jurisdiction. So if you're a shareholder in a company in lick and you are concerned that the company in lick isn't going and suing James, for example, when it has a good claim against James, then you need to rely on the court's inherent jurisdiction in order to convince the court to give you leave to go and stand in the shoes of the company to go and pursue James. What do you have to do to do that? Firstly, you have to prove the claim has a solid foundation, which is to say the company's claim against James has a solid foundation. Um, That's what you have to prove, firstly. Secondly, the court's going to consider the attitude of the liquidator. And thirdly, the court's going to consider practical considerations. We're going to come to a case later that's going to make this stuff make sense. But the other thing to bear in mind when the court is exercising its inherent jurisdiction, as Luke takes a sip of his Glenfiddich single malt, Luke, hats off, um, is that this is discretionary. So the court's going to have a think about whether the claim has a solid foundation. The court is going to think about the attitude of the liquidator. The court is going to think about practical considerations. And then it's just going to exercise a discretion. It will think about whether it wishes to grant leave via its inherent jurisdiction. Okay, um, time to pat yourself on the back and have a sip of kombucha or a sip of red wine or a sip of a Glenfiddich single malt or a sip of a Cooper's Pale or, or whatever it is everyone's drinking. I will join you. Cheers to you. Because we've just finished the hard bit. That was the law. Um, that was the crunchy technical stuff. And my suspicion is you might have a little bit of confusion at the moment. That's fine. Don't worry because we're going to go through some examples to make this stuff make sense. Now, as we go, I should tell you I'm recording this uh, into this microphone here, which is surprisingly good, uh, I hope you find, um, into uh, GarageBand, which, you know, who cares if it's good or bad, but eventually it'll be uploaded to a podcast. And when I say eventually, I mean probably by about 9.30, quarter to 10 tonight. The podcast is called Coffee and a Case Note. Uh, and you'll be able to find it on whatever podcast provider you use. So if you need to step out, or if you miss something, or if you just need to come back and listen to this at double speed, <laughs> then um, you can go find it on Spotify or find it wherever you would like. G'day, Shavi Triple S. 
Yes, it is the Spooko mic, and we'll talk about Spooko perhaps another time, my team. Uh, it's another podcast I'm on, but I'm grateful for the plug. So let's get to some judicially considered examples of derivative suits. This, oh, it's Karma Sethuel. G'day, Karma Sethuel. Whoa, hey, hang on, Karma Sethuel. Good to see you. Um, we're going to start with the question about a derivative appeal. This is a 2008 Supreme Court of New South Wales case called Carpenter and Pioneer Park. Right. The member of a company sought leave to pursue a derivative action. Karma Sethuel. The court said, yeah, fine. And so the member went ahead and sued another party in the name of the company derivative action style. And the company lost. And now the member wanted to appeal. And what the member said was two things. The member said, look, the original leave, when you first granted me leave to stand in the company's shoes, when you first granted me leave to bring a derivative suit, you also granted me leave to bring the appeal. So I've already got leave to bring the appeal, so get out of the way, because I'm going to go appeal. The second thing the applicant said was, well, (laughs) if that's wrong, g'day, Andrew, good to see you. It's a good time to be talking about a company in liquidation with Andrew Blundell in the room. Um, The second thing the court said, sorry, the second thing the applicant said was, If I was not granted leave to bring a derivative suit in the first instance, then grant me leave now. And um, while uh, before final judgment was handed down in these proceedings, just a fiddly bit of law here, uh, the Court of Appeal of New South Wales handed down a decision that said, in effect, that the way Section 237, sorry, the way Section 236 operates is that a company in liquidation cannot, I withdraw that, that an applicant in respect of a derivative action in relation to a company in liquidation cannot rely on section 236 and 237 of the Corporations Act and must instead rely on the court's inherent jurisdiction. G'day, Bron M. Good to see you. Okay, so remember what the member said? The member said, hey, I've already got leave to bring an appeal. I've already got it. Let's not let's not think about it again. And what the court said was, no, that's wrong. And the reason that's wrong, the court said, was that when we grant leave to someone to bring a derivative suit, we actually need to really carefully consider the claim. And so when we granted you leave, we saw all your evidence, we saw all your pleadings, we saw the opinions of the barristers. Bron, that's very kind of you to say. Um, and uh, so we granted you leave. Now, in relation to an appeal, you haven't given us anything to go on and you couldn't possibly have given us anything to go on in the past. So we wouldn't have known about the basis for an appeal back in the past because we didn't even know one was going to happen. And so you certainly do not currently have leave to bring an appeal. And so the member then had to rely on his second argument, which you might recall was him saying, well, great, if I don't already have leave to appeal, give it to me now. And in relation to that, the court said, Uh, No. (laughs) Um, And the court worked through its inherent jurisdiction test. And do you remember the test uh, for the court to exercise its inherent jurisdiction to grant leave to bring a derivative action if a company is in liquidation? 
There are three steps to it. Hello there, she said, oh, Mary, great to have your company. Um, the three steps are uh, the court must ask whether or not the claim has a solid foundation. The court must ask the attitude of the liquidator and the court must turn to practical considerations. And the court did, a, did each of those things. Um, the court said, well, we don't have enough evidence here about how the, what the appeal would be based on uh, for us to form a view that there's a solid foundation. So we don't form the view that the appeal would have a solid foundation. Um, we're concerned about the financial, financial outcome of any appeal for the company. The member was 62 grand. Uh, his liabilities exceeded his assets by 62 grand. G'day, Sammy J. Hansen and uh, was the respondent in bankruptcy proceedings. So there was a real question about uh, what would happen to the company if uh, the applicant was granted leave to bring an appeal on behalf of the company. And then finally, when the court turned to the practical considerations, um, what the court found was that the dire financial circumstances, g'day, Tam Davenport, the dire financial circumstances of the member who wanted to bring the derivative action were relevant again to those practical considerations. So the court said, no, you're not getting leave to bring your derivative appeal. Got it? Good. Okay, we've earned a sip of whatever we're drinking. Team, I'd like to hear what you're drinking. What have we had tonight? There was a Glenfiddich single malt. There's a Cooper's Pale. There's some kombucha going on, some red wine. Surely there's some green tea going on somewhere. As I say, this is a fun little cask strength single malt. It's my granddad's glass, by the way. It's um, from a golf, from a very swanky golf course that I have no alignment with because I'm not a golf person, but it's nice to drink out of. So, you know, bravo. Let's turn to another example. The next case relates to whether the court, and Emma is having a black tea, Emma, more power to you, relates to whether the court ought to grant leave to a member. Oh, green tea. We've got a black tea and then a green tea from uh, for Emma, Emma and Hanny going toe-to-toe on tea colours. It's good to see. Whether an applicant ought to be granted leave in respect of farm debts. Davros, thank you. Good to see you. We've got an Otago Pinot Noir. Yum. Karma Sethio is making an Amaretto Sour and then forgetting about it. Karma, go enjoy that Amaretto Sour. And thanks for joining us, Christiana. Good to see you. Okay. Let's get back to our farm debt, shall we? So um, an applicant brings four separate applications for derivative, derivative suits. The applications are in respect of four different companies. Three of them are in receivership, and one of them is in liquidation. I withdraw that. Three of them are in liquidation. One of them is in receivership. Um, And receivers have actually been appointed to all of the companies. Why? Well, in short, uh, the uh, companies own a substantial parcel of land. They defaulted on the loans that they had been made in relation to that land, The mortgagee took possession of that land, sold it to a purchaser who was a bona fide purchaser with notice, and off they went. And what our applicant said was, that's all fine, but each of these four companies is a farmer within the definition of the Farm Debt Mediation Act. Uh, There was no mediation 
which means that pursuant to the Farm Debt Mediation Act, the transactions disposing of these properties were void. Right? So there's a claim that the applicant says each of these four companies that he says are farming companies has against these external parties, well, against the receivers specifically. He's also chasing the purchaser, but but he fails in that endeavour for reasons which will be fairly obvious and we'll, we'll skate over quickly. So in relation to our first company, what our applicant says is, look, this company's a farmer within the meaning of the Farm Debt Mediation Act. It raises cattle, it grows olives, and it's part of a share farming agreement with this entity that operates a vineyard. And what the court says was, yeah, okay, um, there is a solid foundation to that claim that it is a farmer. The court sort of accepts that for a while. Um, G'day, off-grid survivalist. Good to see you. And I should say with all these people kindly joining in, I'm recording here on a microphone just out of shot, uh, and I'm going to upload this to a podcast, and I'll probably end up just getting to that at 9.30 or 10 tonight. So if you're inclined to search coffee and a case note on whatever podcast provider you like, Um, That will be up and running for you to listen to definitely tomorrow morning and perhaps later tonight. Let's get back to it. So remember, in respect to the first company, Sundara, um, the uh, court found there was a solid foundation for the claim uh, against the receivers, I should say, but not against the purchaser. There's no solid foundation against the purchaser because the purchaser was a bona fide purchaser buying without notice, exactly as Tam Davenport, as I see here, is observed in the comments. <coughs> Next, um, the court found, well, um, there are going to be really substantial risks in bringing the litigation against the purchaser, and so that falls away. But in respect of the receivers, the court was able to be satisfied the proceedings were brought in good faith uh, because the member would come to benefit. There'd be money brought into the corporation that he was a shareholder of if the proceedings were successful. So that was comfortably met. Um, Then we turn to the practical considerations. And I'll invite you to hold on to your hats or sit down or whatever it is because the, um, (laughs) the applicant... And this is incredible to me, although there are more experienced um, insolvency practitioners, uh, including my colleagues there at Chamberlain's Law Firm. G'day, Chamberlain's Law Firm. Hope you like the hoodie. Hope you like the drink bottle. Good fun. What the court found was that our applicant had assets of $6,200, had credit card debts of $250,000, had made guarantees, personal guarantees to creditors and banks in the quantum of $45 million, had a judgment against him from ANZ exceeding $11 million, and had a judgment against him for the relevant lender in these very proceedings, the lender who had become the mortgagee in possession, um, in, in the sum of $23 million. And so what the court found, uh, perhaps understandably, Uh, was that there was no meaningful protection that the company could enjoy from an indemnity. G'day, Stipe. Always fun to be talking about companies in receivership or companies in liquidation with the best insolvency lawyer I know uh, in the room. But um, if we wind back, so we have our applicant who is underwater uh, to the tune of over $70 million. Uh, What the court says is, 
an indemnity from this person who is underwater for over $70 million is of very little value. And so that practical consideration led the court to exercise its discretion not to order, not to grant leave, I should say, to the applicant to bring a derivative suit in respect of that first company in liquidation. I've got a question here. I think I can throw it up if I touch this bottom. What is the year, the case, or citation? Um, I think we were talking about Sundara just then, letters to the Neditor. We're talking about Sundara. That is 2015, Supreme Court of New South Wales, 1694. 2015, NSWSC, 1694. Good question. Oh, low power mode. Yeah, okay, we're back. Oh, we're on low power mode now, team. Gosh, it's tough. It's tough. We're going to make it happen. All right. So let's turn to the second company. Remember, there are four companies that the applicant is saying all these companies are farmers. So all these debts are farm debts. There was no mediation, and so the sale of the property was void pursuant to the Farm Debt Mediation Act. That is the argument being made. And remember, we fall down for that first company. So the applicant comes for company two, says that's a farmer. Well, um, the court found there's no solid foundation for arguing that second entity was a farmer. Uh, And in any case, the crap indemnity from the person who was very poor indeed um, (laughs) was of very little value. And look, I don't want to get too distracted by the comments, but there are two people who I was planning to introduce. That's Luke and Stipe. And they've met in the comments, which is always uh, always good fun indeed. You guys should quickly tell us how you know each other in the comments as I glance over here to the third corporation, Wine National. Similarly, um, the court finds that there is inadequate evidence to show that Wine National is a farmer uh, and the, the indemnity granted is inadequate. The final one, James Estate, uh, in circumstances where James Estate is essentially the holder of intellectual property relating to the uh, distribution of wine, the court finds that um, there is no basis for the granting of leave in relation to that entity. So we then turn to the final one, uh, and that is the entity that is not in liquidation but is in receivership. And just as a quick aside, what the court uh, assumes without making the finding is that we can rely on the Corporations Act if a company is in receivership. Uh, So we don't have to go to the liquidation test. We don't have to go to the inherent jurisdiction. We can rely on the Corps Act 236-237. And what the court said is that, well, we've got to work through these five points. Remember the uh, the five points we talked about. Um, we talked about um, the lender uh, having appointed the receivers, and so it was reasonably clear that the receivers for the company weren't going to go and sue the lender that appointed them. So they proved that first point, the company wasn't going to do it. The second point, good faith, yep, successfully passed that because if the applicant caused the company to run the proceedings and win, the applicant would have more money, wackadoo. Uh, But because of that inadequate indemnity, that hopelessly inadequate indemnity, I say with respect from the person underground to the tune of 70 million, um, it was not in the best interests of the company. And so the claim fell down heavily on the basis that it was not in the best interests of the company. Leave was not granted. Hello there, Cole Snayambi. Good to see you. Okay, uh, team, what are we 
talking about, um, we are in the middle of a chat about derivative actions. The chat about derivative actions is about how a member of a company or an officer or a former officer can stand in the shoes of that company. So if I'm a shareholder and BHP, how can I stand in the shoes of BHP and get BHP to go and sue someone else who I wanted to sue but who it is not suing? That is our question today. You're a shareholder in a company. Company's not suing someone. You want to get the company to do it. That's what a derivative suit is all about. Luke, the paper is not going to be made broadly available, but ping me a message. And anyone who wants the paper, just don't worry. I'll tap the old nose and and I can send the paper to you. That's fine. So let's have a think. Oh, no, I'm out of um, of whiskey. I also want to hear hear what you guys are drinking, if that's all right. Um, I'm not sure we've had any updates since we got to kombucha. We had a lovely Otago Pinot Noir going on there. There's Coop's Green. Someone's drinking Glenfiddich single malt. Luke, I think that's you. Um... Some red wine sloshing around. It's always good. Green tea, black tea, good stuff. So let me know in the comments, team, if you're drinking anything fun. We're now going to turn to a 2019 decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court. This is one called Global Advanced Metals. We've got an applicant who is the shareholder in respect of... (laughs) I shouldn't smile so much at what at the wine Andrew is drinking because it's very, very civilized. The McLaren, McLaren Vale Shiraz, second glass of Glenfiddich for Luke. Uh, I'm very much enjoying this cask strength whiskey. If I'm getting a little blurry, I'm sure you'll forgive me. We've got our minority shareholder who holds a 13.25% stake in a tantalum mining company, right? What this applicant says is that these tantalum producing assets of this company were sold at an undervalue. The argument is these are the assets, right? Sold for 60 million and the applicants, uh, sorry, in 2016. So let's just hang on to the year. In 2016, these assets were sold for 60 million. Now, what the applicant says is the actual value of these assets was somewhere between 245 and 900 million. And we've got Michael in the room who is a valuer and forensic accountant. And Michael, just stay near your comments because we're going to ask you to weigh in here. Um, you guys are asking good questions. If you've got an involved question, Samar, can you do it in the question mark down the bottom so it doesn't um, flow away? And I might just read that. Sorry sorry to be interrupted because it's just a brilliant question from Samar. So does section 236 and 237, can they be relied on by an applicant standing in the shoes of a company in receivership? Yes, um, probably. <coughs> the decision of Sundara suggests that while a company in liquidation, sorry, I should say while a contributory or a former member of a company in liquidation needs to turn to the inherent jurisdiction of the court, Samar, you're exactly right. An applicant in respect of a company in receivership probably, as we remember, the court made this assumption without handing down a binding finding, um, assumed that the Corporations Act applied in respect of companies in receivership. I hope that answers that question. If it doesn't, please roll on and that's fine. Let's jump back. Our tantalum producer, we've got our applicant who says, you sold for 60 million what was worth somewhere between 245 and 900 million. Right. The assertion is that the um, undervalued transaction 
um, arose from a breach of director's duties on account of directors failing to make adequate inquiries and just failing to really turn their minds to the value of this asset before it was sold. Now, um, as you'll recall, as I tried to emphasize, the sale of these assets was $60 million in 2016. In 2018, a small portion of these assets were sold for $1.15 billion. And so um, one can imagine that assets, all of which were sold for $60 million in 2016, and then some of which were sold for $1.15 billion in 2018, might lead a member to raise, a, raise an eyebrow of inquiry and just have a think about that. But while we've got Michael in the room, he's going to be able to add some value on this point, and I, I do intend that pun, because what the court says is this argument is um, afflicted by a hindsight problem, that the sale of these tantalum-producing assets for $1.15 billion in 2018 has no relevance to the 2016 value because the court notes that the 2018 value might have been very high, but the 2019 value was very low. And so the court says, well, hang on. If we're having to cast into the future for values that ought to have been in place in the past, are we going to go to the really high 2018 value or the really low 2019 value? The court says, look, there's a hindsight problem with these issues. Neither of them inform what the value was back in 2016. Make sense? So the court then turns to the section 237 criteria. Five of them, you know them well now. Hello there, Kim Jones, WA. Thank you for joining us. Right. Was the company going to bring a claim? It was fairly uncontroversial that the company was not going to bring a claim. The, uh, oh, the good faith question. This was answered fairly easily. Um, the applicant was found comfortably to be bringing the claim in good faith. He was, while a minority shareholder, a significant shareholder, and so his shareholdings value would increase if the company got some more money in. Um, Michael, thank you for that confirmation about valuation. Uh, if anyone needs a valuer who is also very good at calisthenics, go and follow Mickey KK here in the comments. Um, what the court then had to turn to was the best interests of the company, um, and the test was failed. The court found that, that bringing the derivative action would not have been in the best interests of the company. And in so finding, the court said, if the derivative action was allowed, the defendants, g'day Jerick, thank you for joining us, the defendants in the derivative, derivative action, I'm now getting whiskey-induced derivative pronunciation, so I apologize for that, the defendants in the action would be the current CEO and three of the current board members. And so we'd have a situation where the company would be at war with three board members and a CEO, and that's really going to make the management of the company bumpy. The bringing of the derivative act, derivative action, <laughs> maybe whiskey was a poor choice. Um, <laughs> the bringing of the derivative action uh, would cause the insurance premiums on the company's DNO insurance to increase significantly. Potential lenders are going to be scared off, and um, the applicant undertook to indemnify the company in relation to legal costs. G'day, Jay Bridget, um, and. Uh, g'day, Jack Dean, but did not 
undertake to indemnify the company in respect of the business losses that might occur as a result of the derivative action. And so the court did not grant leave. And so Michael makes a really useful comment here about the true value of the company being a legal term of art, that permissible hindsight may be applicable, but presumably you've got to make a compelling argument for that to come through. Michael, I appreciate you dropping knowledge bombs in the comments. It is very, very kind. So, team, we have that argument, that disappointed minority shareholder making that argument of the $60 million sale that should have been much higher, the applicant said, failing to convince the court that it was in the best interest of the company to bring that application, and so failing in his derivative suit. Now, a uh, quick bit of housekeeping before we go. Um, tonight's talk, as I said, is in three sections. We spoke about the law of derivative actions. We're working through at the moment some judicially considered judicially considered examples. We're going to close out with some practical suggestions. Um, if you've only just joined us or if you need to duck out, that's fine. I am recording right here and uh, later tonight or... Yeah, look, later tonight, but sometimes these podcast providers take an hour or two. I'm going to upload this audio to the podcast Coffee and a Case Note, so it will be sitting there for you to go and check out if you'd like. Okay, our final decision, I think it's our final one, it is, is one of VICAD PTY Limited. This is 2011, Supreme Court of New South Wales. Um, we are dealing here with a fairly complex, what might be thought of as a succession dispute, We've got very wealthy farmer dying, essentially. And as some people know from their practice, when a very wealthy farmer dies, all sorts of issues can arise. Dill C, thank you for joining us. Now, in short, there is an allegation made that the existing directors of uh, the relevant company are staying on the company's land without paying rent and the unpaid rent um, might be in some hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the applicant is also at this time agitating the idea that the defendants, who are also the directors, were appointed as a result of undue influence and uh, potentially a lack of capacity. And so there are all these other arguments coming in affecting this corporate dispute. But despite these various causes of action, the court said, well, let's just address for this um, piece of the litigation, we're dealing with the derivative uh, suit application and we're working through those five criteria set out in section 237 that we now know so well. So the court found quite comfortably that it was unlikely that the directors were going to cause the company to sue themselves. Cheers, Chamberlains. So that's criteria one. Uh, the court found that the applicant, despite having personal malice, despite being angry, angry, despite having genuine animus, was more motivated by the fact that as a shareholder, her uh, the value of her shares would increase if the company was successful in its claim. And so despite that personal animus, the court found comfortably that the applicant had proved good faith. Best interests of the company um, the court found that that was comfortably um, comfortably achieved, comfortably proved, because the applicant was providing the company with a complete indemnity. So the company wouldn't stand to lose anything if it lost in the derivative suit. 
Uh, and remember, there's a relatively low threshold for the serious question to be tried test. So each of these, remember the notice is just, did you provide notice? And well, yes, they did in this case. Um, so the question of uh, good faith here, the question of, is the company going to sue? The question of, is it in the best interest of the company? Is there a serious question to be tried? All of these questions were comfortably met. And so the applicant was granted leave to bring a derivative suit, derivative suit in the name of the company. She succeeded in her derivative action. Mr. Lutfi, hello there. Harul, thank you for joining us. Okay, so we've done the law in relation to derivative actions. We've done judicially considered examples of derivative actions and now we are going to just have a couple of practical suggestions before we sign out. I'm going to have a sip of whiskey. Why not? Cheers to your very good health. Okay. Now, I'm not really a checklist person, uh, and I don't necessarily encourage you to be honest. It comes naturally to you. But I thought there might be value in formulating a few questions a few blunt points for you to look at and think about when you're dealing with, let's say, a client who is considering bringing a derivative suit, looking to stand in the shoes of the company to sue someone else, or potentially you in business thinking about, well, hmm, or potentially you, I should say, as a shareholder or as a member of a company thinking about, hmm, is this the sort of thing that I should be thinking about? Well, maybe. So let's work through my checklist that's not a checklist. Let's firstly ask the fundamental pre-litigation question of have all avenues for negotiation been exhausted? Is bringing court proceedings really the right option? And have we disposed of all the cheaper, quicker, easier options? Which is to say, despite the fact I am a litigator, um, avoiding litigation is almost always the best outcome for everyone except the lawyers. So it is the outcome that you definitely want to pursue. And then we need to turn to the question that uh, can also be tied in with the best interests, good faith test of, is there some other way for the applicant to bring this claim? Is the only way they can bring this claim jumping and standing in the shoes of the company and making the company bring the claim? Or is there some other path you can chart for your client or for yourself um, to go and get the relief that you need? Does your client have standing? Can you prove your client was a member or a former member? Uh, have you got draft pleadings for your derivative suit? Can you go and say to the court, hey, here's the claim that we want you to let us make uh, standing in the company's shoes? Have you got evidence? Are you going to say, here's all the evidence we're going to uh, marshal in support of that claim? If you don't have the evidence, do you have a plan for how to get it? And broadly speaking, oh, do you have advice from counsel? So often if you've got a barrister saying, yeah, it's a good claim, um, that's going to be a huge step towards you making the argument for uh, best interest of the company potentially, because the prospect, sorry, the um, potential outcome of any proceedings will be relevant for that. And I now say I've got two questions here that I've been ignoring. So I'll just make my final two practical suggestions, which are: if your company is solvent, you want to make sure you've turned your mind to <coughs> the five section two thirty seven points. Um, is the company going to sue? Can you prove it's not? Uh, are you coming in good faith? Is there a serious question to be tried? Is the derivative suit in the best interest of the company? And have you sent off a nice little bit of notice? 
Oh, man, I'm on low battery. Oof, tough times, stressful times. We're on low battery here, team. It's, uh, it's basically Mad Max Fury Road right now. And then for the inherent jurisdiction, is there a solid foundation for the claim? What is the attitude of the liquidator? And what are some practical considerations? And because I'm about to finish in 30 seconds, I'm going to come to those questions in about 30 seconds. So team, that's it. Hopefully today uh, we learned some things about how and when uh, an applicant might stand in the shoes of the company to bring a claim against a third party. Remember we talked law, we talked examples, uh, then we talked some practical suggestions and I hope it brought you some value. It would mean a lot to me if you would consider uh, subscribing to my podcast, Coffee and a Case Note, um, but it would mean even more to me if I could bring value to you by answering these questions, which is what I am going to do now. Okay, letters to the netter. Is this mostly used to prosecute breaches of director's duties whilst the impugned born is incumbent? <laughs> yes, is almost the complete answer. Um, a derivative suit is such a useful and, um, on one view, the commanding way to bring um, a director's duties um, set of proceedings for a company that is solvent. So if it's insolvent, often the liquidator will go handle that for you. But if the company uh, remains on foot and is in the black, a derivative suit is pretty much your only option because the board is not going to cause the company to go sue itself. Great question. Hopefully the answer met it. Samala Bell. Despite the fact that, oh, sorry, I, uh, my question was, can, can there be two claims? One based on statutory, one based on, can there be two claims? One based on statutory and then one in the, then in the alternative, uh, then in the alternative, the inherent jurisdiction. So my, yes, that's a possibility. And that's probably what you would do for abundant caution if the company was in receivership. And so my, you've got another good question. Despite the fact that good faith and message of the company are two separate considerations, can and, why can't I make this bigger? Can and, can I zoom in? Can I, can I do something here? So I am so sorry. Uh, I'm so, so grateful for your question, but I, but I can't seem to expand it out to get to it. Um, so I'm sorry. Um, an applicant is going to need to meet those um, good faith and serious question um, um, criteria. Richard, thank you for joining us. I'm trying to wave to you, but I've just ruined everything somehow here. And, and I apologize to you all for that. Um, gosh, I look bizarre, don't I? Look, I'm dealing with one of these influencer lights. Let me just turn down the intensity. There we go. Um, so uh, I apologize for that, Samara. I'm sorry for giving you a half answer. Um, please feel free to send me a message. Um, team, that is it. Um, if you missed anything, if you'd like to um, check in with how this talk went, I'm uploading it to the podcast, Coffee and a Case Note. Please jump on there. Um, I'd be super grateful if you're listening to this on the podcast now, if you could leave a review and if you could make it a really generous, awesome review with lots of stars and lots of thumbs up and lots of flame emojis, I'd be grateful. Um, oh, Michael and Jerk, thanks for these um, kind comments. Luke, you two letters to the editor. Tam, um, guys, it is a real pleasure to do these. I do them at 8 p.m. Wednesday um, every week, and you're so welcome. Thank you for these lovely comments. Um, so Wednesday, 8 p.m. next week, I will see you. That's Sydney time. We'll be doing it on Instagram. We'll be having some booze, as I'm having now. Stop me from pronouncing derivative properly. 
And then if you prefer a more business-like one, we do um, similar talks on LinkedIn on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. And I'll have a cup of tea then, and I'm sure I won't mispronounce derivative quite so much. But in any case, I'm really, really grateful for your company. It really means a lot to me that you guys take some time out of your lives to come and join me to chat about areas of the law that I think are fun. And so um, there's nothing else for it but for me to say thanks so much, and we will talk soon. Have a good night. Cheers, guys.